listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And I'm Jordan McGillis, Deputy Director of Policy at IER. On the podcast, we occasionally get the chance to speak with somebody from the energy industry and discuss their work. And today we're joined by Nick Deulius, the Director and the Chief Executive Officer of CNX Resources Corporation and the author of the forthcoming book titled The Leech, an indictment of the evil sapping America, depleting free enterprise and bleeding producers. Nick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Alex. I think a good place to start would just be to get a little bit about your background. Um, How did you get into the energy industry and uh, just tell us a little bit about your background there. I'd like to tell you that it was part of a well thought out reasoned plan, but that would be uh, a little bit far from the truth. I like a lot of careers, I think, out there in life. A lot of it was a bit of circumstance, but also uh, some fortuitous circumstance. So I'm, I'm a Pittsburgh native. I've grown up and was raised in Western Pennsylvania, basically lived my entire life within a five mile radius. And through those, those years of my life, I, I grew up as a kid really experiencing what was a very severe economic downturn in Western Pennsylvania, Northern Appalachia, the Pittsburgh area, with the manufacturing loss of jobs on a massive scale, uh, along with uh, an energy downturn that, uh, that went with it. And, and I saw that and lived that firsthand with my immediate family, uh, friends, uh, schoolmates, et cetera, and saw you know, the pain that was inflicted upon what was once a, a very vibrant region. And in many ways, I think emblematic of what built, built America. It was a region of immigrants, uh, they came here with a work ethic, not much else. Uh, were able to, to go to work uh, with family-sustaining wages in the mines, in the mills, on the railroads. And then before you knew it, a generation or two down the road, uh, those kids were off to bigger and better things and learned quickly what happens when you have a good foundation of an economy and what happens when that foundation uh, gets eroded because of policy, circumstance, et cetera. Um, so I always wanted to stay within the region. I, I loved it. It's where my family was from. I, I had a passion for it. And I wanted to go work in the mills uh, or into some sort of manufacturing facility. Those options were very limited. And I ended up studying engineering uh, at Penn State and ended up being able to secure a job with, at the time, what was Consolidation Coal Company. And that was back in 1990. And, and through the last 30 years of a professional uh, progression, I was able to, to stay within the energy space and now work within what has been a revived and resurrected uh, energy industry within this region, as well as a manufacturing base and specifically in, in natural gas with what's going on with shale gas. Yeah, you mentioned you grew up in Western Pennsylvania. My uh, my mom said my family's actually from Greensburg there, so I know a little bit of the area. And I know the last decade, decade and a half, the economic story of Western Pennsylvania can't be told without obviously mentioning some uh, some aspect of the natural gas in- industry. So Given, you know, CNX's positioning there, you know, what has the fracking revolution meant to that part of the state and I guess the country um, in terms of the local economy? But um, given the fact that you're, you're from there, um, how much have things changed over the past couple of decades? Really interesting, Alex. I, in many ways, it's history repeating itself. The, the primary reason Pittsburgh was placed on the map to begin with was because of its proximity literally sitting above vast amounts of, of energy resources in the form of coal back in the day, and ultimately oil as well, not far from Pittsburgh, where, where oil was first uh, commercially developed uh, just north of the, the city. 
And then of course that coupled with the transportation system with the rivers uh, set itself up quite nicely for a, a manufacturing super center uh, that everybody associates with Pittsburgh when you think of it historically. Through those sort of late 70s, early 80s time periods when, when that demise occurred, um, it looked like the region was searching for the next thing and, and searching for a long time in a very painful manner. What's happened now with disruptive technology that brought about sort of the second revolution of energy via natural gas and shale is that you've seen disruptive technology that's been developed and applied to a resource that we always knew was there. The fact that there was methane trapped within the shale rock deposits uh, below actually the coal deposits in the region is nothing new, uh, but the ability to extract it economically and efficiently at prolific rates, that's what was always uh, lacking and, and limited. And with American ingenuity and the free market doing its thing, you saw new technology, new approaches, new techniques brought to bear in a way where suddenly this methane molecule, right, the, the giver of life and the provider of quality of life is now being unleashed at very prolific rates and a very low cost. And once that occurred, probably starting just about 15 years ago and really taking off about 10 years ago, the region refound its, its base, right? So that, that next chapter that it was so desperately searching for, uh, it was reestablished ironically with what made it great to begin with. And now what was once viewed as a very traditional sort of old school set of industries and skill sets, it is now high tech and very much a disruptive technology story. So it's sort of, again, I use that term resurrected. It's resurrected the manufacturing base, the energy industry within this region. And many of the traits and aspects that we saw uh, back in the day that built the region into what it is or what it became, it's now being repeated. And it's obviously being repeated in a way today where from an environmental perspective, right, we're avoiding a lot of the mistakes that we saw in the past and doing it in a way that's responsible. Nick, I'm really interested in and intrigued by your use of that phrase disruptive technology. Uh, when the general public thinks about fossil fuels, that probably isn't a phrase that they think of. Um, can you talk about how your perspective on the industry might contrast with, with how it's discussed generally and perceived of by the average American who may not have the intimate knowledge that uh, the three of us do? It's a, it's a great question, Jordan. It's, it's absolutely something that uh, you see quite a bit of. When, when you say energy industry, fossil fuels, natural gas industry, people outside of the region or outside of uh, individuals working within, within the industry, they associate, again, what was traditionally uh, done and the approaches that were traditionally used with, with that technology at that point in time. Uh, today, this is very much a disruptive technology at work, and, and you see it across many different facets. Um, so when I think of this industry today, my analogies are um, sort of the analogies of the computer industry on the advent of, of computers and PCs, uh, many software uh, industry type analogies, uh, what Henry Ford did with manufacturing and what that did to the automobile industry and its transition and evolution, uh, what you see now maybe with social media and the like, it is a literally a new disruptive technology. And now you're seeing this evolution where you've got state-of-the-art advanced technology that's step-changing the cost and the economics of providing basically a widget in the form of a methane molecule, natural gas, that is absolutely vital to every facet of life that you can imagine from this region to the developed world to the developing world uh, and everything in between. And now you're seeing a really interesting dynamic at play where you've got 
individuals uh, who are waking up in the morning in southwestern Pennsylvania or eastern Ohio or northern West Virginia. Uh, they're going to work in the natural gas industry. And during their eight hours on the job, they are doing something with respect to extracting or processing or transporting uh, this methane molecule. And that methane molecule can end up in many different uh, applications. So it might stay in region and go to generate electricity here, which it's doing so at a much lower cost than what we've seen traditionally. And it's doing it at a much better environmental footprint than what we've seen traditionally with, uh, with options like coal. It might be shipped in a pipeline and sent to another region of this country to do the very same thing. The Southeast United States is a case in point, which is building its economy off of natural gas. It might be liquefied in Maryland and sent on a liquefied natural gas LNG vessel and sent to India, Japan, uh, Europe. And those countries and nations that are utilizing it are using it also as a strategic hedge. So if our natural gas is liquefied and sent to Poland, that's to help Poland with respect to how they manage one of their neighbors named Russia. Um, if that is shipped to Japan, that's helping them manage a relationship with a neighbor called China. So these have some pretty significant geopolitical implications as well for the country and the world. And then last but not least, increasingly, I think people are coming to realize that if you really want to have a very impactful, immediate impact on the poor across the globe, the quickest and best thing you can do for them is to get them access to electricity at the most reliable, lowest cost way possible. And that lowest cost, most reliable, quickest way possible is through natural gas fire generation. So increasingly now we're seeing more of the developing world where there are poverty issues and poverty challenges where they're starting to embrace uh, natural gas in a bigger way. And that is doing unbelievable things to life expectancies, uh, to infant mortality rate, and frankly, uh, to quality of life in the form of individual rights. Because when you, you get electricity access, suddenly education, all those other things start to take off and uh, in rights, individual rights uh, start to flourish as well in those regions. Yeah, the story of poverty on uh, eradication in the developing world over the past couple of decades is something that has sort of gone overlooked. And I think that story that you just told and uh, the story of natural gases on uh, sort of resurgence is very different from what we hear in certainly the media, but in the political conversation surrounding fossil fuels. I was wondering if maybe you could just touch on, you know, what what are your thoughts and feelings about the way that these technologies are discussed in our public discourse, but then also in our political discourse? You know, what, why is such a disconnect there? Yeah, and, and there is a disconnect, isn't there? Uh, to the point, Alex, I think a couple of thoughts really play up and, and pop up when, when you bring up this issue. Uh, one is a lot of the discussion and debate and frankly, the, uh, the rhetoric out there, it ignores the data and the facts and the science that we can, we can view and all agree on, frankly, looking backward. So part of this is just a history lesson. And just to sort of put that history lesson in context, the bottom line is as CO2 levels have grown in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution, since mankind has learned to, to grasp the power of the carbon atom and the, uh, and the methane molecule, uh, wonderful things have happened to the, the human condition. So just again, some, some data to put that in perspective. When you look at the late 1800s, say the 1870s, 1880s, uh, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere were under 300 parts per million, around 285 parts per million, give or take. 
and the world was experiencing 1,400 famine deaths per 100,000 people, which is a pretty pretty heavy uh, percentage or or toll on on the human race. You go to the 1940s, and this is again during World War II, right? CO2 crept up over 300 parts per million, so it rose up to about 310 parts per million. The famine deaths they went from that 1,400 deaths per 100,000 people down to 785. So basically cut in half in that time. And then today, of course, CO2 sits over 400 parts per million, and the world is basically suffering three three famine deaths per 100,000. So history should tell us, again, as, as, as carbon utilization is embraced more globally, wonderful things happen to the human condition. Okay, so if you're pro-carbon, you're pro-human. If you're anti-carbon, to a large extent, that's going to be viewed in terms of science and data is anti, anti-human. So the second perspective I put out there is when you look at uh, the, the issues with respect to natural gas in particular and climate change and, and CO2 concentrations. The fact of the matter is, and this is now going from history to, to current day, if you look at what's, what's occurring today uh, globally and regionally, the increased utilization of natural gas uh, through the shale revolution has done wonderful things uh, for the environment, including uh, CO2 emissions atmospherically. I'll give you the example of, of my home state, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. If, if you just looked at Pennsylvania as a standalone developed economy of its own, developed nation of its own, it would be the only developed nation in the world that would have already reached the Paris Climate Accord targets, largely on the back of the utilization of natural gas brought about by the Shale Revolution. So in other words, as states or economies or nations or regions of the globe start to embrace natural gas more, it's going to do good things to CO2 atmospheric concentration levels. And that, that holds also for the developing world. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa as an example, um, the, the forms of, of energy access are, are quite crude, right, and quite environmentally unfriendly. Uh, you replace that with the ability to access electricity and energy through natural gas generation, you're going to decarbonize the sub-Saharan continent. So that's, that's another sort of perspective. And then the third one I'll give you is going from sort of the history lesson that we've all seen to the current day that I just summed up. Now I'm looking forward. And looking forward, I think, is where there is a, a serious uh, discussion and an assessment that needs to occur with respect to the concept of zero carbon and renewable energy. What I mean by that is there is really no such thing as truly renewable energy. We can talk about solar and wind, and they certainly, I accept that they will have applications that are quite logical and economic in certain uh, set of, uh, of conditions and factors, but to view them as carbon neutral, carbon zero is not factual. They are incredibly carbon intensive when you look at their life cycle analysis and everything that goes into mining, manufacturing, shipping, and then backing up uh, that form of generation. So all forms of energy, particularly wind and solar, they've got carbon footprints, just like natural gas does, and they can be quite extensive in terms of their carbon footprints. We need to think through, based on data and science, what are those impacts, and then where does that put us with respect to energy policy moving forward? Mm -hmm. And that's something that we certainly have focused on at IER over the last few years. Alex and I wrote a paper earlier this year that, that touches on some of these points, and the, the trade-offs that exist just aren't really taken seriously. And there's something broader at work. It, it goes far beyond energy. And I think that your book uh, probably gets at some of those points, some of the broader 
fundamental philosophical issues that are driving this conversation in some bad directions, but also uh, conversations about productivity writ large. For sure. And I, I think the whole energy discussion and energy debate and things like government mandates and government intervention with respect to energy policy to dictate energy mix, uh, to dictate protected market share, uh, to dictate basically capital allocation, and frankly, the, the cost and almost the, I'd say the use of energy, but maybe more appropriately, the rationing of energy. Uh, what that is part of is, is to your point, a, a, broader, a broader context, at least in, in my view. And that context is one where uh, there are many dividing lines that we can choose today in society, right? We can regional dividing lines, racial dividing lines, uh, socioeconomic dividing lines, political, all of those, right? And they're all real and, and they are all uh, issues that, uh, that require a lot of thought and, and effort on, on behalf of individuals and society. But I believe that the biggest dividing line today is, is none of those. Instead, to me, the biggest dividing line today is the individuals and companies uh, and industries that are out there creating and enabling and then serving free enterprise, uh, which helps to flourish uh, individual rights uh, and, uh, and, and capitalism and, and the like. And then on the other side, there are also entities, individuals, and institutions uh, who are looking basically to, to take from the value that those others are producing and creating uh, on their own behalf and for the benefit of all. And it's sort of these call them makers or takers or uh, doers versus the, uh, the, the leeches, as I call them, uh, with respect to the, to the book uh, that you referenced that is the much bigger, broader issue. And energy just happens to be one of those foundational industries that fall right squarely within uh, this type of a, of a dividing line. And the, the problem is, is that I think historically, you've always had this, this, this dividing line between these two groups. But historically, that second component, the takers uh, that are basically taxing or bleeding uh, the producers, the creators and enablers, the servers of free enterprise, uh, they were of a size where it was more, I would call it manageable. It didn't basically collapse uh, the entire enterprise, but as they have grown, and they have certainly grown through the years and through the decades, I think we reach a, a tipping point or an inflection point where we run the risk of everything basically collapsing in on itself. Because as you know, right under the laws of mathematics and science, um, you can only uh, take so much until at some point under a constant, uh, constant volume equation of so much value to be created and allocated, you run out of a value to, to continue to bleed or to tax. And I fear that we're reaching that point. And I also think that energy policy and energy debate sometimes is very symptomatic and emblematic of this issue uh, at work. I would have to agree with that, particularly with respect to the expectation that reliable electricity generation from natural gas and coal uh, and other sources will be there no matter how much money we plunge into from the public coffers into wind and solar. Um, there's, you see that dynamic in microcosm with that, with that instance. You do. And now you're seeing it uh, on a, a very broad and a massive scale that, that really is measured in trillions of dollars. But that's the, the monetary side, which is substantial. I also worry quite a bit on how we measure that with respect to quality of life. And again, you can look at life expectancy or infant mortality or individual rights. And I worry about the toll that that takes just with respect to culturally uh, who we are as a society and what we associate 
uh, success in our society with. So there are very large implications that are at play here. And when you look at what's going on uh, with this energy policy debate between renewables and say natural gas, uh, what you're seeing more and more is basically a command and control economy or a command and control system where government and other stakeholders that are looking to uh, feed off of the government regulations and rules are basically gaming the system to their benefit, but to the detriment of one of the pillars of an economy, which is reliable energy, affordable energy, and you know pillars as in not just the United States and what we're doing with respect to our value creators, but again, also globally, and, and what that means with respect to the Chinese Communist Party and what's going on in, in that corner of the world, or the Russian bear, and what's going on with respect to Europe, or what I worry the most about, uh, the economically disadvantaged and the, and the destitute poor that are out there globally, uh, what's best for them at the end of the day. I, I don't think that mandate or heavy-handed policy with respect to uh, energy solutions, so to speak, that defer and deter the access to reliable electricity for those individuals. I don't think that's the right answer. I think the market and technology and sort of the best in class approach of a meritocracy basically coming up with solutions to get the poor in the globe, the quickest, most reliable forms uh, and access to electricity. That's the best solution for the human condition. Yeah, the way that you approach talking about these topics um, to me is is very refreshing. It's a departure from what you hear a lot from people in the industry. And, um, you know, before we sat down to do this interview, I went on your website and um, your website, you talk about this idea of quietism. And I have a sense that that concept probably played a big role in your decision to write the book. Um, so could you outline just what, uh, what you mean by quietism um, and how it pertains to communication about these important topics? And then how does that relate to the book? Well, Alex, I'll tell you, the, the last place I would expect to find myself five years ago would be on a podcast. Uh, with 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 you, I, I'm a shy individual by nature, and I have historically embraced, like a lot of people in the business world, the approach of what I call political quietism, which is, you know, to sum it up, basically keeping your head down, not speaking up. Uh, basically, when attacks come or vilification may come to your industry or to your company, uh, to, or to your team, uh, you basically grin and bear it, and, and you go about and trying to create, enable, and serve uh, value and, and free enterprise. That's been the formula historically. Uh, what's changing though, once again, is that the, the volume and the magnitude of those attacks has grown to the point where we run a serious risk that if we don't stand up and speak what we feel to be in defense of, based off of facts and data and science, in defense of our teams, uh, our industries, our regions, our families, we run the risk of losing all of that. And it certainly feels in the context of the energy industry, as well as in the context of just the United States today and where we're at, there's almost a duty uh, I feel that comes with that in the business world today. And that duty is largely uh, being shunned. It's being ignored by many in the business community. And I don't think that's a, a good thing uh, coming into the end of 2020 and into 21. Now, I know why uh, that might be ignored or avoided, but when you start hearing more and more talk about the social responsibility of a corporation and stakeholders beyond uh, owners or shareholders, uh, in my mind, uh, that type of a conversation 
actually creates a heightened duty for business leaders to speak up. And especially if you're working in an industry that you fundamentally believe is vital and good for society, a noble industry, a noble endeavor that is being vilified uh, time and time again. So um, that to me is something that is interestingly consistent uh, with a lot of the talk and the, the thought that's been out there with respect to what the role of a corporation or the role of business leaders are today. It's it's interesting in uh, uh, the New York Times has sort of reopened that conversation that Milton Friedman had a long time ago about the the role of uh, corporations and um, sort of an ongoing debate in our society. You know, corporate social responsibility. These concepts. Where do you fall on that? Well, I um, I am a big fan and advocate of Milton Friedman. So um, you're not going to hear me uh, taking him to task with respect to. You know, something he was speaking to, I think, uh, almost looking forward. It's amazing. I think that that article was written in the 70s, if not maybe the early 80s. So this is something that's been on his mind for quite a long time uh, before it really came to the fore for, for most of us. And I think at the end of the day, again, in many ways, this follows and in, in, in mimics logic and, and math, right? There are many different inputs, factors, and stakeholders that you need to manage as a business leader today. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I'm not disputing that. I think to do that doesn't reflect uh, the reality that we all know. But in the end, there has to be a hierarchy, right? There has to be an ultimate, call it variable that you're solving for. And if you're trying to maximize seven different variables, you're going to run into the zone of mutual exclusivity quite, quite quickly. Um, so at some point, you've got to figure out what's the top priority, what's the second priority, what's the third priority, and how do I manage all those in concert to optimize the, the true north that, that ultimately we're, we're looking to, to optimize. And I feel that from a, a business perspective, uh, we're a public company, that our number one objective is to maximize, optimize the long-term intrinsic value per share of our company. And there are many things that you have to do well to be able to do that. If you can't operate responsibly, you're going to fail miserably at that endeavor. If you can't keep employees uh, in a safe work environment, you're going to fail miserably. If you don't invest in and, and take the long-term view with the regional communities that you operate within, it's going to lead to failure. And if you can't work with customers and suppliers and vendors in a way that creates more of a, what I call a sustainable, and here's that term, right, ecosystem out there, that's, that's going to not bode well for you when you're looking at trying to optimize the long-term intrinsic value per share of the firm. So I see Milton Friedman's approach in view of things back in the, in the 70s uh, and today with the social responsibility talk that's out there of a, of a corporation, I see them being able to coexist. Uh, what I don't see today is I don't see a recognition that it's great to say that you've got six or seven or 10 individual stakeholders or variables that you need to manage, but you can't optimize all of them without running into inherent conflicts. That's the discussion. That's the missing piece of that discussion I think needs to be brought to bear. And interestingly, we need to go back in time to the 70s, I think, to, to figure out that, uh, that riddle. Uh, you certainly have expressed your admiration for Milton Friedman. I also think in your discussion of that topic of the, the long range uh, perspective that a business rightfully would take when it's trying to sustain itself invokes Ayn Rand a little bit. Um, how do you think that philosophy uh, has influenced 
your evolution as a more um, outspoken advocate for the industry? I think Ayn Rand and, and her, her writings and, and her teachings, I think they, they suit the business world uh, quite well. I think they, they suited the business world and fit the business world well in the, the 50s, and I think they, they do so today. Uh, and again, there, there are going to be a lot of, to me, what you look at with objectivism is also obviously soundly based in, in rationality and going back to math, science, logic. So I think you can very much peacefully coexist in a world of taking care of and managing stakeholders in a way that you're optimizing that long-term value creation of the firm and doing it in a way where you're not uh, violating some of the tenets of objectivism or you know, violating the, uh, the, the tenets that, uh, that Milton Friedman had, had laid out there uh, decades ago. So I think they all coexist. And to me, it's, it's more of a, uh, what, was the, what was her famous saying of, of checking your, your premises, right? Mm-hmm. This is a way where you think through to sort of check and, and water test the, the statement. And what I mean by the statement is the statement of we're a responsible operator uh, or um, you know, doing well by doing good that you often hear with ESG investing uh, or uh, you know, we, we take a long-term view, right? The, we're, we're a good uh, corporate citizen, the social responsibility of a business. All these sayings that you hear out there, they're quite easy to, to repeat and it feels good to repeat them, but you need to think through and check the underlying assumptions as to what does that exactly mean? When you're making a decision on a Monday and then you're making a decision on a Wednesday, what does that mean? How are you filtering that into um, data, into math, into science to know that you're making rational decisions on a consistent basis? So to me, I, I look at Rand and uh, I look at Milton Friedman and, and they help me take the aspirational, the, um, the, the sentence that sounds good and, and try to basically have that apply and function rationally in the real world, which can be quite tricky because the real world is a very complicated, ever-changing, complex uh, system that needs constant management and constant thought back to, am, am, I, am I making decisions that are discrete and consistent uh, with what I'm, I'm trying to do over the long haul with respect to, to my business or my industry or, or our team? I think an important element of all that that often goes overlooked too is that I think it orients people towards a more humble approach to what they're trying to do in the world, right? Because once you understand the complexity of everything and the need to think through your decision-making process and these things, I think that's sort of an overlooked element of all this too. And Yeah, so you know, a lot of... Um... A lot of public companies, one of the things that you see is that um, some of the maybe the, the primary or chief decision makers, they, they get somewhat far removed from the actual running of the business, right? They almost become more heads of state and, and the euphemisms and the, the, uh, the sayings become more prominent and, and you start to appear at places like Davos and, and things like that where you know, the underlying business is really the, the engine and the foundation of everything. That's, that's the value creator. So if the, if the underlying business is functioning in a solid manner, if it's being optimized on a regular basis, if the decision-making is going through this rigor, 
across all the different sort of variables or stakeholders that you're solving for. You're putting it through the real world filter of, okay, we have to make a decision, A or B, which will it be? If you're doing that on a regular basis, that creates the value. And then suddenly, once the value is created, right, it becomes a much more straightforward process with respect to how do I do this with respect to retaining and attracting and motivating employees through compensation? How do we do this via responsible development when it comes to environmental uh, footprint and environmental impact? What's the balance going to be here between what we're doing on customers in terms of what we sell our product for versus service providers and vendors that help us get done what we need to get done with respect to what we're paying to develop the product? Suddenly all these things now hit the second level of analysis, but if you don't take care of that first, then you've got nothing. And increasingly, if you look at where a lot of the attention has been across many corporations, across a lot of industries, not just energy, instead of that and optimizing and making those decisions to, to create as much value as you can within the business for its owners and then for all the other stakeholders that, uh, that then are, are inputs to that, all of a sudden, now you're just looking at trying to find ways to, to game the system. You're looking at where the rule may be created to help you, where the market might be protected to assist you, um, where the regulation might be promulgated to, to enable you. And that's where suddenly all of your time, all of the talent, all the attention starts to focus into. And that at the end of the day is not a zero sum game, it's probably a, a negative value, uh, value destructive game. But more and more, that's where a lot of companies and a lot of the leadership of companies and industries are focusing their time upon. And that's probably not a good thing. It's definitely, from my perspective, not a good thing uh, for the nation. You know, that, that zero-sum game of politics obviously presents a lot of opportunities for people here in Washington then to um, sort of jump into that game and mess around with the rules and things. So in terms of the book, you know, what impact do you hope that it has on the way people see that element of our politics and its relationship to business today? So I think a, a couple of thoughts there with, with respect to aspirations with, with the book. One is to, is to clearly defend um, entities and individuals that, from my perspective, are, are engaged in, in very what I keep calling noble endeavors. Um, so, and, and who might some of those be? I think of a, a motivated student in a public school system, you know, putting them in the best possible position to achieve on their own merit and to go out and do great things in life, where they might be in a system that, whether it's reading proficiency or science proficiency or math proficiency, leaves a lot lacking. Um, I think of a teacher that wants to go the extra mile, right? A, a good, uh, aggressive teacher, and, and again, putting them in a position to succeed on their merits uh, and not be maybe uh, sort of capped or trapped within a system. I think of, of industries that, based on their efficiencies, their technologies, their, their strategic advantages that they, they toiled to develop uh, and risked everything to develop, giving them the chance to compete in a free market and not be dictated sort of to second tier or third tier because of, again, someone looking to, uh, to game a system or, or set things outside of the way uh, that the competitive environment and free enterprise has set it. Um, I, I think of those types of, of different stakeholders. They're very different, right? They're very different types of entities or individuals. But they're all crucially important to the ongoing future success of our free enterprise system. So that's one, one aspiration. The other aspiration is sort of the other side of that coin, 
which is to, to create a discussion to maybe take the task or at least discuss what is going on with respect to other uh, entities or, or industries or the like, and how that is perhaps counterproductive. Okay, so uh, looking at a whole range on, on the other side with respect to that, and you can start, of course, with government. The government from the start was viewed to be minimalist to basically protect individual rights. It's, it's basically grown and evolved uh, quite a ways from that original view. And, and today, uh, government is quite intrusive. It's almost possible to do anything today, certainly with respect to economic activity without government approval. So yeah, certainly you need some level of, of minimal government, but I think we're far, far progressed from where, from where that level is. Um, but there's also other, other examples of that. And I think even things uh, such as monetary policy, I think that's, a, that's another example of this to play because monetary policy is just that, it's policy policy with very specific aims. And, and the concept of, of free money, right? It devalues the thought in my mind of money. It penalizes creators of value and savers. And it, it sort of benefits the, the chosen, right? It benefits via the, the free money policies, capital allocation into certain sectors, um, consumption patterns. And frankly, it changes the culture of what we've known as a sort of capitalistic free enterprise uh, society. I think Rand did have some views on that too back in the day uh, when, when she was mentioning uh, things like watching the, the value of money in, in some of her books uh, because money basically from her perspective was the barometer of, of how a, a society is doing. I think there's some truth to that. So it's a strange, you start thinking about this theme and you start thinking about what you hope to achieve. Um, it leads to some pretty interesting paths that end up in places that you never normally would have associated with this, like monetary policy. Yeah, Jordan knows I'm someone who's occasionally critical of Ayn Rand, but uh, also certainly enjoy a lot of her work and her ability to recognize the tie between culture and economics uh, was just very much ahead of its time and ability to do that in a fiction novel on top of that. Jordan, do you have, uh, do you have anything before we... Uh, we let Nick go here. Well, I'd just like to give Nick a final opportunity to give the summary of the book, a synopsis that might entice potential readers to, to pick it up. What can they expect? Um, what do you hope to achieve with, with the book? I think, uh, Jordan, to, to sort of sum things up, think of the, um, the, the young adult uh, that's just starting out with their, their journey. Uh, could be a career journey, could be an educational journey. And in finding ways, and, and this individual could be sitting there in the middle class today, the individual could be sitting uh, in an economically uh, disadvantaged region, it could be urban, it could be rural, uh, it doesn't really matter with respect to, to where the, uh, the, the tough uh, economic challenges might be, putting them in a position where they've got the best chance uh, to succeed, to develop, uh, to achieve, and to, to create value on their own behalf and for their own benefit. To me, that is an underlying motivation uh, for, for the book in, in total. And a big part of that too, of course, uh, I mentioned sort of the, the kids in sort of the, the, the public school system that are, that are students and they wanna, they wanna achieve and they wanna strive. Part of this also is in academia with respect to higher education, uh, colleges and universities. And, and thinking long and hard about uh, the mission of a university and has that mission evolved to the point where it's misconstruing uh, what really the, the scope and the mission of a university should be. So uh, I hope to catalyze some thought 
and some discussion on these topics. And I think they are timely. I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing out there today are, are playing out in a big way. Uh, but if it does catalyze thought and discussion, I consider it a success. Nick, thank you very much for your time today. Alex and Jordan, thank you.